Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Medicine Grand Rounds. Is it too loud? Do I need to turn the volume down? Okay, not deafening anybody. Great. Um, we are very fortunate today to have two of our institutional leaders here to talk to us um, about research uh, at our institution. Um, to introduce them today, I'm happy to welcome Elizabeth Cook, who is an assistant professor of medicine and the section chief for hospital medicine. Thanks, Beth. Thanks, Kelly. Happy to introduce um, Dr. Alan Green and Dr. John Laurie today. We'll just give a couple of um, introductions for each of them. So Dr. Green received his BA from Columbia, his MD from Johns Hopkins, his internship in internal medicine at Beth Israel in Boston. He was then the director of biomedical research at the Special Action Office for Drug Abuse Prevention and the Executive Office of the President. Um, completed his psychiatry residency and fellowship at Harvard, and then joined the Harvard faculty until 2002, when he made the excellent decision to move up to the Upper Valley. Um, he is a professor and the chairman of psychiatry at the Geisel School of Medicine, the director of Synergy, and has, is the author of more than 330 papers and abstracts. Dr. John Laurie, um, I laughed with him this morning because I told him he was like an onion. I, he has so many peels to him, <laughs> um, including an undergraduate degree in geological engineering from Princeton, um, an MD from Stanford, and master's in evaluative clinical sciences from Dartmouth. He is the director of the Pragmatic Clinical Trial Unit at TDI, the director of the Dartmouth Orthopedics Clinician Researcher Program, is a professor of medicine, orthopedics, and of the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice at the Geisel School of Medicine. Thank you both for being here. Thank you very much, Beth. Uh, I'm told this is what I'm supposed to do now. Let's see if this works. Let's see. Here we go. Ah, good. Okay, so uh, I'm really happy to be here, and uh, thank you, John, for arranging this, and Beth for introducing me. Um, I'm the director of Synergy, as you heard, and Synergy is a one of uh, about 60-plus CTSAs, Clinical Translational Science Award programs. They're funded by NIH, and we have one here. It was funded originally in the, at the end of 2003. As you can see, they uh, scattered throughout the country. And uh, here we are, I don't know if this really works, up there in, in New Hampshire, you can see there, we're the only such program in Northern New England. Uh, in, uh, there are quite a number of them in Boston, or the Boston area, in New York, in the San Francisco area, in Los Angeles, and so forth, and in Chicago, and scattered throughout the country. Uh, these programs uh, are five-year programs funded by the NIH. We have just resubmitted a, a couple of months ago for renewal of our uh, funding. We're waiting to hear what the score will be. We are reasonably um, confident it's a good application. We'll see what happens. Um, and we will know the score at the end of uh, January. When we submitted this grant originally, the idea was that uh, we were trying to figure out sort of what the, the niche of Dartmouth is and Dartmouth is shark. Uh, and, and the way I wrote it was to say that Dartmouth traditionally is strong basic science, has strong basic science programs. It always has. 
and they're traditionally called T0 or T1. That's the nomenclature in the field. Uh, and that there are strong outcomes or health services programs, TDI, for instance, T3, T4. But by comparison, clinical research here traditionally has been relatively weaker. And so what we said was we thought we needed to try to build T2 clinical research and that the pipeline of new translation investigators was fairly limited. When we looked to try to figure out how many K awards there were, career development awards, there were very few. Uh, you could count them almost on one hand, and which was pretty shocking. So we thought we needed to build young investigators, especially, though not entirely, MD investigators. Clinician investigators was really where the problem was, it's, as far as we could tell. So you know about the transition of research from Dartmouth College to Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and there's a lot that's happened that we've been involved in, and Hitchcock has obviously stepped up. T2 research programs are growing, and we made that point in the application, and I'll show you that the pipeline of new investigators is growing as well. Now, the core functions of Synergy, and this is probably more than you need to know, but that there are consultations, there's support being given of all kinds. Uh, we fund pilot programs of one kind or another. There's an active involvement in the community with a community advisory board. We work with the Dartmouth Co-op. Uh, we focus to some degree on rural health, uh, and there's specialized training programs of many different kinds. Um, there's a fellowship program for clinicians, clinical research fellowship, as you can see. A number of people from the Department of Medicine have been involved in that. Clinician Entrepreneur Fellowship has basically spun off two companies so far. So we're actually very proud of the way this has worked. Uh, and in addition, we've built uh, an informatics structure uh, that will allow information to move back and forth. One example was the first one that was built, which was called Inspire. It's a way of getting into the Synergy program, and people can go onto the website and through Inspire, request this, request that. There have been about 700 users of it over the years. Uh, another thing that we introduced, this came out of Vanderbilt, actually, called REDCap. REDCap is a way of collecting and managing research data. How many people here have ever tried to use REDCap? Okay. So, so you know, that's new, relatively new. We introduced that here. It, and, and you can see the uptake on the right there of the number of users. So some of those people are counted here in 1,346 of them. In addition, more recently, we introduced what's called I2B2. This sounds like some sort of Star Wars thing or something, but, but I2B2 is a, is a program, is a, is a platform that was developed at Harvard, which allows a user, in this case, Dr. Soxer, could conceivably sit at your computer and go and find out how many people in this EHR here, have rheumatoid arthritis of a certain characteristic been on this medicine and that medicine or age such and such and such and such, or either male or female. You can get that information like that. And this is what a lot that allows you to do. You can see the uptake of that. Now, what we've done is build on top of that something called Shrine. And Shrine allows the information that you're going to gather to be shared with, let's say, UCSF or Stanford in, in a de-identified way. So there's, so there's no issue of privacy, and the information is shared in a de-identified way. And on top of that, we've built, and, it's, and I say we, it's Alfredo Toronto-Ramos, there's uh, Peter Solberg and his team, Peter's back there, uh, Elizabeth Stadina, and, and this will allow 
us to go into through semi-cortrinetics into pharma companies, and they can figure out how many patients of a certain type are here. Do they want to, uh, would, would someone want to do a study of one of their new medications or a device? We can also connect to something called the ACT network, which is a CTSA network that eventually will have about 80 to 100 million people on it. And so you can do huge studies with this. We are about to launch Vivo here. Vivo is a way of uh, basically putting information in, a, in a, a database that will allow people to understand what your, let's say Jay Bucky over there, what, what your academic rank is, what your publications are, what your grant funding is, and who you work with, who you collaborate with. So uh, if someone was interested in the kind of work you do and was at Utah, they might learn about you, and then before you know it, this whole thing can be connected. And, and so this is going to be, again, a nationally connected system. One of the things we did early on, we were given a supplement to our CTSA to build what's now known as Smart IRB. This is an IRB reliance system that basically allows, again, if a study, John Lurie is going to do a study here, and you want four other sites throughout the country to participate, those sites can rely on the Dartmouth IRB. They don't have to, you don't have to go through multiple IRBs for approval. There are certain local considerations, and John, I think you will mention that, but basically it simplifies multi-center trials. NIH now, as you probably know, requires a central IRB, a single IRB for multi-center trials. This is the mechanism, and you can see down at the bottom, uh, the uh, copyright is at Dartmouth, Harvard, and the University of Wisconsin. It was basically started here and built here. We have a whole career development pathway. Uh, Marty Bruce, uh, who's actually in the Department of Psychiatry and TDI also, is, is, is uh, championing this, and a pipeline development of investigators, a K, a, a K award program, I'll tell you more about in a minute, and transition toward independence, getting people who have a K award, getting them a an R award, a, a big NIH grant, figuring out how to help people do that, because that's often where investigators fall down. They get an early award and they can't convert to something else. And then uh, just strengthening faculty mentors and, and how Sox was involved in that early on years ago. This is just an example of some of the people, or the people between 2014 and 2019 that we've supported for this K Scholar Award. This is basically getting an NIH Career Development Award funded through us, and we select them. And some of these, of course, as you can see, let's say Alex Gifford and others, have been in the Department of Medicine. And these people, it may be hard to see, but on the right, you can see the awards that they have ended up getting. Another way of looking at that would be this. On the left, you see we have funded 16 of these KL2 scholars. And we've invested $4.5 million of our money. And the return of external awards outside of Dartmouth are 20, is $22 million and growing. 45 pilot awards that we funded. You can see the return on that. 11 of these clinical research fellows. These are people who really were probably not ready to get a K award, at least not from us. And so we funded them 20% of their time, gave them intense mentoring. And these people, many, almost all of them, have now gotten external funding. You can see the return on investment there. This shows that at Dartmouth, 
Dartmouth Synergy is connected nationally to a whole slew of sites, uh, other CTSA sites. And locally in New England, we're connected to something called CTR sites, clinical translational research sites, one at Maine, one at University of Vermont, and one at Brown, that are not CTSAs, but they are programs like CTSAs. And we're, connect we're connected to them to try to study rural populations. So the new grant, Synergy 2.0, that went in is, has gone in through Dartmouth, but given the separation for research of Hitchcock and, and the college, Hitchcock is basically a partner in this application, and the VA is part of it. You can see on the bottom, these other New England programs are part of it as well. The, the program is, we're going to build it on our emerging strengths in clinical research and investigative development, and you can see the rest of that. But we're going to leverage our serious strengths in research methods, especially in statistics, in bioengineering through Thayer, and digital health, there's a, the Center for Technology and Behavioral Health that's run by Lisa Marsh, is a, um, is a major force of Dartmouth. And so we're going to be leveraging that, developing apps and using it for uh, research, especially in the rural area. And translational healthcare delivery science, I don't know if uh, Corey Siegel is in the room. He's, doesn't look like he, he doesn't know who he is, but he's involved with Anatostasin, Gene Nelson, and others trying to come up with a way of doing predictive analytics and figuring out how to, how to understand who to treat, how you need to treat people specifically, target treatment for someone who really needs it. It's a really interesting notion. And we're going to be focusing on rural New England, collaborating with these other programs and looking at rural health disparities. And one of the reasons for that is uh, probably nobody in this room has to understand this. Everybody knows it that most of northern New England is known as isolated rural. You can see the light green. Um, and it's the disparities of, of, of health in that area compared to where we are here, or the more urban areas are really dramatic in terms of suicide, diabetes, alcoholism, and lots of other problems. And so the, the aims of the application that we've just put in are basically to continue building workforce, uh, develop team science and engagement with the community. Integration means uh, pediatric patients, elderly patients, people who have unusual uh, problems, as cystic fibrosis, for instance, which is now an adult disease. Um, methods and processes, including how you go about doing research. We're, in, we're instituting something called quality by design, a way of designing an experiment to make sure it gets the answer that you're looking for. Not the, not the answer, but it's trying to answer the question that you're trying to answer. Most studies don't do that because they're not well designed. So we're gonna to try to figure out, help people figure out how to improve their design. And there's informatics. This just shows that the, the people involved in this, Bill Green, Paul Palumbo, and Anna Tossison are associate directors. Sheila Noon, who's sitting here as the executive director. You can see on the left, Marty Bruce, is uh, in charge of our career development. There are advisory committees. Steve Leach is the head of the internal committee. Kathy Brady from uh, uh, South Carolina is uh, MUSC, is the head of our external board. And then there are the components of it. And down below, you can see, again, this, this simply doesn't work, but network capacity, that's John Laurie. 
And he's going to talk about this idea of network capacity. What we're trying to do is make sure that we are part of this consortium of CTSA programs. And to me, this is really one of the tremendous opportunities for this place. Here we are in the Upper Valley with, we, we have, as far as, I can under, as far as I know, and I believe this is true, the smallest population base of any academic medical center in the country. How, how sucks is shaking his head. He tells me I'm right. And, and uh, Joanne always talks about Joanne Kimer talks about this. So how do you do a study in a, popula in a small population area? It, we can do proof of concept studies here where you don't need many people. But, but how do you do it with, and the answer is you collaborate. So the system that John is going to be talking about, this trial innovation network, gives people here, Jay, you, or John Batsis or anybody, the opportunity to collaborate with lots of other places, and it makes it simple. So I'm going to introduce my colleague and friend, John Lurie, to take it from there. Thank you, Tom. So the, you know, the, the, um, the CTSA network, um, you know, has sort of been evolving in the first round. Um, you know, Alan talked about what what our local CTSA has done, and a lot of it's been focused internally to try to improve the research capacity and, and systems and processes locally. And that's what the, the funder NIH wanted for that first round. And then they saw things good happening at all these local sites. And now they've sort of turned their attention from how do we fund people to locally improve their research to how do we make this thing uh, greater than the sum of its parts. So Alan was probably a little bit visionary in calling RCSA synergy um, because that's what they're looking for. So now it's like, okay, we spent all this money letting you build up your research capacity. Now I want you guys to sort of all work together and do more. And, and one of the uh, initiatives that they've done to try to promote this is called the Trial Innovation Network. So it's a collaborative of, of across the CTSA, so all the CTSAs are called hubs within uh, this network. And then there's some local central resources to try to help them work together. And the goals are to address roadblocks in clinical trials, particularly large multi-center clinical trials, um, to accelerate translation, and not only to do them better, faster, uh, and more efficiently, improve the processes, but also create a national laboratory so that you can do experiments on how to do experiments. And so this has been the, the basic premises and, and outline of the concept of this has been published in the Journal of Clinical Translational Science. If people want to read about that. Um, and it's a vehicle for investigators here to collaborate with CTSAs across the country. And there's these three components. There's our hub here and the hubs that the different CTSAs. So the CTSA grant is kind of your ticket to ride in the in the in the tin. Uh, and then there's two parts. There's the trial innovation centers, or these things called TICs, and the and the recruitment innovation center, or the RIC. All those components make up this trial innovation network. So the TICs are these funded partners to provide consultation and support for trials that use multi-centers across these CTSAs. And there's three of these uh, trial innovation centers. One is a, a collaboration between Duke and Vanderbilt. Uh, one is at the University of Utah. And one is a collaboration between John Hopkins and Tufts. And so there's those three trial innovation centers. 
And then there's a, a recruitment innovation center, which is a resource to help advance recruitment and retention methods to develop and distribute tools and strategies for getting more people into your study, for keeping them into your study, um, and develop some innovative approaches um, as they work with each center. When they find new ideas, they so then incorporate that into the toolbox that then becomes available for all the other centers. So advances on how to do research better, do a trial better at one site, can more quickly spread to the rest. So in the, in the each CTSA hub now is sort of part of this system as has been asked to develop what's called the hub liaison team. So it's a team with the local CTSA that links that CTSA into the TIN, keeps up on what's happening with the TIN, distributes that information to you. That's what we're doing today. Um, and connects you back to the resources of the TIN. And so this is a two-way communication, two-way pipeline. So one is to facilitate review of Dartmouth-initiated multicenter protocols to the TIN. So that's studies that get developed here. You have an idea for a study, a multicenter study. You want to do something. There's not enough population to do the study here, right? But it's a good idea. So it links you to the TIN to get the information and consultation from them and also link you to other sites that could be involved in the study. Um, so there's a, a, a general consultation and then there's specific services and we're gonna talk about those in depth. And then there's the other direction where somebody at Johns Hopkins or University of Washington is developing a study. They need sites and it links Dartmouth to that study where we can become evaluate whether we want to be participate in that study. And so it links us to collaborative efforts with other CTSA sites around the country. So our studies can go into the TIN to get both advice, resources, and collaborators, and then studies from other sites in the TIN can come to us where we can be a participating site. So the, the purpose of the Hub Liaison Team is um, to do those linkage and also to make sure that the studies here, um, if you're gonna submit it to the TIN, that you've taken advantage of the local resources that, that NIH has invested in here to make sure that the, the simple things that we can make it the best that it can be here with the resources that Alan laid out, uh, statistical consultation, informatics, and others have made it the best that it can be before it goes into the, the next level at the TIN. So that all of the TIN submissions go through the Hub Liaison team in order to ensure, one, that it's appropriate, two, that all the boxes are checked, and three, that you've used the local resources best available. Okay, so this is the Hub Liaison team. Um, here's myself, Sheila Noon, who's there, who's the Executive Director of Synergy, Lori Lester, um, who's here, um, also Paul Palumbo, Sam Lee, uh, Alfredo, who's in informatics, uh, and Rick Enelo. And so this is from the directly from the, the Trial Innovation Network um, of their sort of, their flow, their concept of what this is. So this is, um, you have an idea for a trial, you go through the Hub Liaison Team, we connect you to the Hub, you submit the study, that gets reviewed centrally, and then it gets assigned to one of these three ticks, either the one at Hopkins or the one at Vanderbilt or the one at Utah. And then 
there's a, a consultation um, where they will get in touch with you and go back and forth. They review the protocol, what you're asking them for. And one, it can be asking them for specific resources to help. I need some help. I've got my whole thing set up, but I really need some help in, in this part of it or in the recruitment um, materials or this sort of comprehensive consultation where they'll sort of review it and that can become a formalized study of the TIN. You're still the PI, it's still your idea, but they will take on and, and some of them will actually serve as central uh, data coordinating centers and sort of do some of the operations and run the study, which can offload some of the cost to these funded centralized resources. And so there's sort of two parts. This is their ideal. This is what they're, where they really want to get to, where people are presenting, submitting for full consultation their trial ideas ahead of time, and they say at least two months before you're planning to submit the grant. So they really want to be involved up front, help you design it, help you make it the best that they can do, and, and utilize the TIN so that when it finally goes into NIH, it goes in as a study take, being taken care of in the, in the TIN, and that presumably will, right, will help in the review um, because you're, you're using these centralized resources. And so that's what their ideal thing is, right, is up front. The, the big things are that it has to be a multi-center study, which they define as at least three sites. Um, it has to be U.S. sites. It has to be in the NIH sort of, right, mission. Um, and they'd like to do them early on up front and really sort of, uh, they want things where the, where the researcher really wants to engage with them and try new things or innovative things where they can sort of experiment and learn better ways to do things. But they also have resources to help you afterwards. So they have these specific things that they've developed and, and, and distribute to the, the sites. So there are standard agreements to help make things go more quickly when you're signing up sites. Single IRB, which we'll talk about, they can help specifically focused on your recruitment and retention plan or assessing recruitment feasibility. Right, they can help you develop recruitment materials using best practices from other studies. There's these community engagement studios where they're helping you sort of design how to bring the community and get them interested and engaged and excited about your work. And then these ERH-based cohorts, which we'll talk about. And then there's a specific uh, interest at the, um, I think it's the Hopkins group, on these things called E2E -E trial designs, where it sort of starts out as an effectiveness, sort of classic effectiveness study, but rather than doing the effectiveness study, getting the answer, and then doing the effectiveness or pragmatic study afterwards, you sort of flow directly in the same period from one to the other. So standard agreements, all that text is completely meaningless. Uh, this is just there to remind me to tell you they've worked on some standardized agreements. So the first two are for getting sites subaward contracts worked out with multiple sites within the study. And there's some standard basic template language that the lawyers and everybody have gotten to review and sign on to ahead of time. You still have to do the subaward. You still have to go through the details of the study. But all the basic stuff, right, the boilerplate has been agreed on by, yeah. yeah I just wanted to point out that uh, yeah, I've done multi-center studies uh, before without any of this help. I 
you can spend two years getting your study off the ground with all trying to get these things done on your own. And you just burn, and you might as well light a match to the money that you've gotten from NIH. And you're just, it's just taking time. And the whole purpose here is to basically make this almost automatic. Yeah. And it actually works. Yeah. Right. So, there's, so the, all the boilerplate, you know, when you do that, whatever site's starting it, they have their boilerplate for sub-awards, and they'll send it to the different places. But then if it's not in the same format or the basic concepts that that study, then they have to start from scratch, and they review it, and they haggle back and forth. And this one, everybody's agreed on the boilerplate ahead of time. So all the negotiation is actually about the details of the study and what's required. So it just speeds up that process. Um, and then there's these confidentiality agreements um, that the CPSA site has signed on for, and that's what allows you, if you have an idea for a study, to send your protocol into the TIN to be reviewed by the different sites and not worry about the confidentiality of your, of your ideas. And so this is sort of the, their results. So there was a national CPSA meeting that Alan was at uh, several weeks ago. Um, this is some of the details that the people who run the TIN uh, presented there. So it's been up and running. The first submission was in uh, 2016. They've had 213 consultations submitted from 51 different CTSAs, 181 different PIs across 59 different uh, therapeutic areas, 16 different uh, NIH institutes that the funding uh, came from. And this just is a breakdown of that. Uh, most of the studies have been through NHLBI because that's where the money is. And what they report is that most of the requests that have come in of all those submissions have been, the requests have mostly been around single IRB review and the Recruitment Innovation Center resources help with recruitment and retention. And so these are those three ticks that we talked about, and each one has set up a single IRB site and processes to help facilitate the use of that single IRB for these multi-center studies. And so Alan already talked about smart IRB, so it helps facilitate reliance agreements between the, the sites like us and a, a single or central IRB. Um, there are these letters of indemnification that the, the local IRB then uh, signs off and, and to the central IRB. And then they've developed this, this portal called uh, IRB Reliance Exchange. It's a way to communicate the information between the local site and the central IRB. And one of the, and one of the nice things uh, on their the TIN website is for all of these things, the smart IRB, um, these letters of identification, uh, IRX exchange, you can go and there's a thing where it says view participating institutions so you can go and see which sites have signed on to these agreements so that you know who's in the pool right, that's already done this work that could be collaborated for you with these things already in place. This is just sort of a, a brief aside about the single IRB. Again, the, the TINS found people are very interested in this and using their system for setting up the single IRB. Uh, it's important to realize that the single IRB or central IRB takes care of these two functions, IRB review and HIPAA review. But the Human Research Protections Program has all these other functions as well, ancillary reviews, things like 
radiation safety and IACUP, uh, institutional policy verification, state and local law verification, uh, training, qualification verification, whether people have done the right training to be qualified to do it, and conflict of interest review. Those things are not done at the single or central IRB because they're too reliant on the local context. And so even when there's a single IRB, you still have to go through your local human research protection product program, what most people call the IRB. You still have to go through that to get to the single IRB because they have to do this part and they have to sign off on that so that the single IRB can do their work and know that everything else is in compliance. So people sometimes feel like, oh, there's a single IRB, I don't have to go to Dartmouth. I can just bypass them and go directly to University of Utah because maybe that will be better, um, but you can't. And so this just shows the process when you're using the single IRB. First, the IRB and the, C and the central IRB have to talk to each other about whether they will set up the reliance agreement. They have to then make the reliance agreement. Then you submit the study, you submit it locally. They then submit to the central IRB, but those ancillary reviews locally and centrally can happen at the same time, which speeds up the process, and then you get the final result. Right. And so it often looks like a regular IRB application locally, but it's the review that happens centrally. But that helps in the study because you're not having changes in one place that aren't made in the other um, because they don't like the way you worded something. All right. And so this is the data from the TIN um, for their single IRB. So 48 studies uh, have been implemented um, using the single IRB in the TIN sites. 174 relying sites, total of 517 reliance agreements have been through these studies. And the average size here is 13 sites per study. So that gives you a sense of what kind of studies were they're dealing with. And they do have, as part of this, in all of these things, they've developed educational materials. So there's educational materials. If you were the lead site instituting the study, how do you work with the single IRB and with your relying sites? If you're a relying site joining a study, how do you work with the single IRB? And they have very good training materials um, to help the IRB, to help the investigators sort of figure out how to work this try to grease the skids. All this is about greasing the skids and making these big trials happen faster, more efficiently, and more predictably. So those are the ticks and their role. They'll do these overall consultations. Sometimes they'll become the coordinating center for a big trial. Sometimes they'll just give you advice on design. And then there's the recruitment innovation center, the REC, and that's focused on getting people in recruiting them and retaining them in the study, which is year after year after year after year, the biggest challenge in all clinical research. And they provide these tools and services, and this is um, centered out of Vanderbilt, and there's partners at Columbia, Ohio State, sorry, the Ohio State, Rockefeller, <laughs> and the University of Utah. Um, and they have, they have training seminars, they have um, 
They have webinars frequently that are then archived on the TIN website that you can go and watch where people sort of talk about the, the ways that they've approached this and, the, and some of the innovations and how to do this. Um, and this is their activity to date. So they've had 196 consultations. Um, 96 of them were brief, 32 of them were comprehensive, uh, and 78 were just getting resources. So again, they have these resources, a bunch of these um, studies you can see uh, for the resources, 78 different studies have gotten resources. 43 of those were studies that had been funded, were ongoing, weren't making their recruitment efforts, and they needed help. And so they applied to the 10 for RIC resources to review what they were doing for recruitment and retention and get ideas on how to fix that. And there's a bunch of groups that the TIN does that. There's a group out of the UK called Quintet that will do that. It's sort of a fee-for-service model. They're reviewing your study. Um, and so they will do that. You're sort of running behind. They'll look and say, okay, you can do it this way, you can do it that way, try to get you back up to speed. Not surprisingly, their preference, right, if you ask them the right way to do it, they say, don't wait till you're behind in recruitment. Get us involved, call us early, we'll help you get going from the start. But they will do that, right? And that's important to know. So there's this idea they want you to come in before you submit it, before I talk to us early, help, let us help you design the study and move it forward. That's what they would like, but they also are there as resources. And so if you need help later on, you can still apply to them and get that help. So those are all the framework of what the TIN is what it's there for, and how it can help researchers at a place like Dartmouth who have an idea for a study and they want to get assistance, expertise, insight, consultation, or access to big populations or more diverse populations to run their study. Right? So that's the us in, and now we're going to talk about the last part, the in out, research going on elsewhere in the country they submitted to the TIN, and how do we get involved in those studies? And those things that the TIN calls expressions of interest. And so this is their steps for their expressions of interest, and there's parts, the parts to it are an EHR-based cohort assessment. So you talk about what population you're, you're interested in in your study, and they'll send those specifications out to the different participating CTSA sites where the informatics team will run that through their EHR system and come back and say, here's how many patients we have within our population that meet the criteria for the study. And that, right, and they will often send those out and then have a threshold of how many patients in that category they'll need for you to be considered a potential viable site. And then there's protocol review for feasibility and budget review for feasibility um, and the site PI identification. So that is the, the cohort assessment is the study assessing the site to see whether you seem feasible. And then these other things are the site assessing the study to see whether it's of interest and whether we can do it and whether we want to do it because we can afford to do it. The budget's enough to be worth our time and effort. And so here you see that 22 
expressions of interest that the 10 have sent out to different sites. 10 of those studies have been funded. Seven of the 10 were funded using the sites from the CTSA that were identified during these expression of interest. And so here's the process locally for the hub liaison team that, that um, has been developed for us going forward. So the point of contact, which is Lori, right, will receive a request from the TIN. And they identify, let notify the hub liaison team. Um, and we're working on identifying facilitators in different research areas around the institution to help link us out to the investigators to get a better idea of how to, to spread this information through the institution. And so we'll find out for the study, and then either through a facilitator or directly, we'll try to find out if there's a PI here who's interested in working on that study. So here's a study on you know, uh, resuscitation after cardiac arrest. So we'll talk with the cardiology folks and say, here's the study, here's the protocol that they've sent us because we're signed on to that confidentiality agreement. And look at the protocol. Or is there somebody here who's interested and has the time, uh, wants to be part of that study? The informatics folks will run the cohort assessment to see how many patients that fit that phenotype are available. And then the Office of Research Operations will take a look at the budget um, and the, the, the rest of the protocol and see whether or not um, it's something that we can feasibly do here. And then we'll either get back to the TIN and say, yes, we're interested, but we don't have enough patients to fit that, or yes, we're interested, we have the patients, we have the expertise, we want to do the study. Uh, and that information then goes to the, to the PI, and depending on whether it's already funded or waiting for funding, right, then it just goes along that way. And so here's our ex local experience here at Synergy to date. There have been 16 completed cohort assessments that Tim has requested from us and the informatics team has run, um, and two that are currently ongoing. And then these expressions of interest we've received for 15 studies that have been vetted. Four of them are currently under review for feasibility with the local um, system. Eight of those have been in cardiology, three of them in pediatrics, three of them in neurology, and one in psychiatry. The ones that we haven't gotten involved in most of have been because we don't have enough population here, like in, in pediatrics. And we're currently involved in three studies that have come from the TIN um, that we were signed on as a site for. So there's the target trial in rheumatology that William Rigby is the local site PI for. There's this ophthalmology study that Don Miller is the local PI for. Um, and the Valier study in pediatric audiology that James Saunders is the PI for. And those have come out of UC Harvard, NYU, and, and University of Utah. So it's a real opportunity for researchers here who don't have enough to do with the local population to become part of these bigger uh, systems and sites. And so that's, what the, that's who the HLT team is. It's what they do in linking you to the TIN and some of the background on what the TIN is there to accomplish. What are the next steps here? So this team just got put together a few months ago, and we're sort of trying to figure this all out and get the word out. Um, so next steps, 
is to identify and engage these departmental facilitators, stakeholders within the area so that it's easier for us to identify who might be interested in a particular study and how to get to the right set of investigators to review these things. Um, and then also electronically to get a tin landing page on the Synergy site to get people easily linked up with some of these resources, see some of the educational materials, get directly to information from the tin so that you can sort of sort out whether or not uh, they have something that will be of value to you. And so that's the background on Synergy, what they're doing locally on the, the Child Innovation Network and how we've, we're trying to set up this Hubliazon team to link you to that. Uh, and we wanted to leave a bunch of time for questions. So uh, that's the end. If people have something to ask either me about the TIN or Alan about Synergy locally, please go ahead. Yeah, Rich. So this is all really interesting infrastructure for research. It strikes someone like me that you have to be reasonably established to take advantage of this. My role is often I hire somebody who has inclinations towards research, maybe has great ideas, and I have no idea how to get them started. So yeah. my question is, do they start with local grants like Hitchcock Foundation to get some footing, and then they look into synergy, or do they look into synergy early on? Yeah, let me, let me comment on that, Rich. That's a great question. Um, and we've thought a lot about that. Uh, so what we've done, yeah, there are pilot grants from the Hitchcock Foundation or from us. There are, there's a clinical research fellowship that will get people going. Uh, and, uh, but it may be that if there's a national trial going on, and you have a young person who just joined your group and interested in endocrine function, something or other, um, we can probably help them uh, get involved with it and maybe help coach them about how to be part of that study. So it's one way to get someone, someone who's interested in research can become a partner in a bigger study and learn how to do the research that way. So, I mean, there are different mechanisms. I, I just think this is a tremendous opportunity for young investigators, the, this trial innovation network, a lot of what we have in Synergy, but also to be able to, again, to reach out to the larger populations that we don't have here. And, you know, what's interesting is that I was talking to people in this uh, uh, Trinetics group, which is, I mentioned before, they can go on top of our, our I2B2 and Shrine system. The po and, and John McKellen, who's back in the room, knows a fair amount about this. The, the populations that we have here are not so small. It's interesting. The current databases, I understand, John, uh, in our EHR is 837,000 people. That's what the number I was given. Uh, we are going to be, it's higher than that now? Okay, higher. And, and we're going to be linking with Maine Medical Center through Shrine. They have 1.2 million. So these two alone will have over 2 million, and which is not a small population base. Um, so despite the fact that we have a very narrow population around us in the, in the local region with the smallest of any academic medical center, we have to deal with a large population. Our problem is the ge geographic you know, spread. So then... Part of what we're trying to do within Synergy in this new grant in particular is figuring out how you can study people four hours away from here in the winter. How do you do it? So they, they can't come back and forth all the time. What are, the, what are the ways to do it? Can a smartphone work on it? Can telehealth work? Can, there, can we have people regionally and locally who see some of the people? Can you use a van? What do you do? And so I'll just add to that very briefly. So 
I mean, I think in one sense you're right. So in one sense, right, that's the, the big, one of the biggest challenges, right, in research, how you get started, how do you, how do you get up to the point where you can be putting in some of these proposals, right? And that, that's always been a challenge, and that's why places like the Ishtar Foundation getting started and getting some foundation of accomplishment behind you. But the, and the two, you know, in, in some sense, it really is well designed for the established researcher to do these big studies. And so a lot of the time that I was talking was sort of laying out what that is. But the reason that we put these expressions of interest at the end was because I think in many ways that's the most relevant thing for the most number of people here, right? Which is the researcher at the University of Washington or somewhere else has put this study in and we can be a site. So that's where the young investigators, right, if they have the energy and the expertise, can sort of, right, get engaged as a site if we have the right population and the right expertise and, and be part of a big trial and that sort of, that next step um, building up to get that underneath them. So then, where are then in the position to go the other way. There's a question back there, and then I know Sheila wanted to say something. Actually, I have two. Um, the first relates to IRB. One of the challenges that we've had is uh, with joint studies between Dartmouth and the VA is that the VA has a fairly complex yep. IRB structure. Are we making any headway at um, getting the VA to participate in the single IRB process? Sure. Uh, the VA here used to be part, used to rely on the Dartmouth College IRB, and then about three or four years ago, set up their own IRB, going exactly counter to what the national strategy is supposed to be. VAs are complicated because they have their own national race. And what's happening, we can't solve the VA, CCSA, or VA Dartmouth problem locally. It has to be done centrally in, in Washington. And there's a lot of discussion going on right now to try to figure out how to allow VA IRBs to rely on university IRBs, for instance, or, or academic medical center IRBs. And by the way, Dartmouth-Hitchcock and Dartmouth College, you know, they're now two IRBs, but they're rely, completely relying on each other, and both have signed on to Smart IRB. So the, the short answer is, no, we haven't made any headway. We have made headway in that the VA has their own central IRB that yeah. the local VAs rely on, but, but, but there's a... It, an unbreachable firewall between the VA central IRB and the it, academic it really, it's really scuttled the development of, a, of, a, yeah. of an important project. I, I suspect that within a year or two, that's going to be broken, bridged, though. I think, I think it would be solved. Is there another question? Another question about primary care research. Um, and I, I, I think that the, that the primary care fellowships, the, I'm sorry, the, the research fellowships with 20% protected time seem important. But the, one of the, of the major... Um, lacunae is that um, young clinicians who have an inclination towards research um, don't have, let's say, 20% protected time to start to develop their research interests. Um, and they end up really behind the eight ball and not yeah. able to, to, to get going. Um, and this, I mean, I noticed that the studies that you have, most of them are, very few of them are even close to primary care. Um, I was wondering if you have some thoughts about that core funding at an academic health center that would permit, say, 20% protected time for new faculty for two years to give them the opportunity to develop their ideas. Well, that's, uh, let me just say, that's something that's being addressed a lot by the chairs. Uh, I can tell you in the Department of Psychiatry, we do this all the time. I, I provide protected time for people, for young people, if they're interested in research, and I think that they may be able to 
succeed or get going, and we provide intense mentorship. So uh, Synergy is doing it, but the departments are doing it. Some are doing it probably better than others. I think that's really, really important. If we're going to galvanize research in this institution, it, it's going to come up from the bottom. It's young people who get interested in it, who are rewarded for it, who are incentivized to do it, and the system has to be able to support it. And I think the Synergy can't do it all by itself, and we're trying, uh, but I think that a fair amount still has to be done. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Sheila, you wanted to say? Yeah, I just want to make a comment about the early career investigator, if, even before a pilot application could be put in. We do have two um, cycles of supportive meetings in education. One is a research development workshop, which runs four Wednesdays in a row. That's going to cycle again in May, so you'll see some literature come out about that. There's also a research and progress meeting that is an ongoing twice a month meeting where people can come and hone their ideas and there's a lot of peer support. So those are a couple of options. So please stay in touch. So yeah, one of the, one of the problems that we've had is, is getting the word out. I mean, these things are really amazing. These, this research and progress seminar that goes on. The people who are involved in it are really excited. One of the reasons that we, you saw the success, the return on investment, it's a relatively small number of people we're talking about, but the return on investment's been huge. And the reason for that is this intensive mentoring that we've been able to set up. What we're trying to do now is really spread this more broadly. Please. Forgive the naivete of this question. It has to do with ethics. Let's say you, there's someone who has done some work, make it up, doing some work with rural, rural health care, and he or she comes up with an idea how does that person know that there's no fear that in sharing that across such a wide area that someone can steal, take, borrow that information and then, then use it for his or her self? I mean, so that, that's, the, that's the concept or the idea behind these um, confidentiality and disclosure agreements that all the CTSA sites have signed on to. So there's, a, there's an agreement and that they're available that you can read them. So if you have an idea, you're wondering whether or not you want to share it with the, the Trial Innovation Network to get their feedback, you can read what the, the disclosure agreement that people that the sites have signed on to, right, and decide whether that protection is enough to make you comfortable to share your idea that you think it's protected enough. I, I, That's I, not concept. I, I'd put it this way. I think that if you have an incredibly innovative study and you, and you really, it's, it's your intellectual property, um, I suspect that that's not going to be shared with anybody. You're going to try to get your own grant on that. The studies that we're talking about are comparing A versus B. It, you know, it's not, you know, anyone could design it in a way. It, it may be very innovative. But I don't think you have to worry so much with those kinds of studies about someone stealing the idea. The question is, how do you get it done? And, and so you're right in a way. Um, it, you know, if it's more fundamental research and you really have this notion that's been, you've been working on this for 15 years and you've come up with a, a theory, uh, it may not be appropriate to share. <clears throat> Good. Uh, thanks for this. This is, uh, I think this is a really uh, great set of infrastructure. I, and I love this trial innovation network. And just sitting here, I can think of all sorts of uh, things that would be great to put into this uh, system. 
But the problem is, uh, is finding the people to do that. Um, for me personally, I know that I, I wouldn't have, I feel like I don't have the capacity to put more trials through something like this. And to find the people who I could work with who could, it's just been proven to be very difficult. Here. Here. And it, one, one particular trend has been towards to not have research faculty. Um, that's been a decision that's been made at Geisel, which I think is a is not a good decision. It, it's so people who want to maybe take some time and focus just on research, a physician or whatever, can't really be a research faculty member. They would have to be a research scientist, and um, and and that kind of flexibility. So this is flexibility in trial design, but we're not having flexibility in people, yeah, giving I, people the ability to say, "Hey, I'm going to do this for a period of time," and can fit into this, you know, this structure that's been put together. I, I think I think this institution is evolving, mm -hmm. and I think you're going to see more of that. Uh, you know, and, and uh, there's a, a search for a chief research officer here, as you know, and I think that the institution will change. I mean, Al Sox was chair of Madison for a long time. I saw, I assume, faced some of these same issues. I mean, uh, this this institution, for it to be successful in research, has to do some of what you're talking about. Yeah, and I also have to say it seems to be going in the opposite direction. The, I'm can I ask sure. one other quite quick question? Sure the I2D2 thing. Someone brought up to me this issue that um, it was not permissible for someone to look into the medical record of someone that they treated, you know, to see how things turned out later on. Is that an issue? Well, well these, these aren't. What uh -huh. you're doing with I2D2 is looking at identified data. Okay. So there's no issue of privacy or anything like that. What you're doing is trying to find out cohorts. You want to know how many of these there are, how many. That's all I2B2 does. Okay, no, that sounds great. And, nice. it's, and you're, not in their, you're not in their record when right. you do that. That was a lot of what the infrastructure of I2B2 was, was to allow these de-identified searches of, across the population to get just around exactly that issue. Yeah, and if you want to know... Okay, who that person might be who has such and such, you have to go through the IRB, get permission to do it. Okay. Yeah, back here. Some of the some of the study designs that we that you talked about were um, cohorts or were uh, trials for the most part. How about like cross-sectional studies for say residents or fellows that are interested in more of a kind of larger uh, sample size? I, I, I think those, uh, those can work as well. It doesn't have to be only a classic uh, you know, effectiveness trial or efficacy trial. It could be broader based. It could be observational trials. It could be other kinds of things that you can do with this system. But but the the tin is not for sort of health services type research. That it's basically for trials. There's other resources at TDI and other things to support people who are interested in more sort of cross sectional or health services kinds of studies. We're just about in. any last question. If not, thank, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, everybody.